Um, so pretty much what we're doing is we are continuing the church history class, and this particular lecture is on the Middle Ages and the Holy Roman Empire. You may or may not know what those are, but by the end of this lesson, if I do my job, you will, and um, it'll help put some pieces together, at least of European history. But, you know, like like the history of the church and the history of Europe are so intertwined, especially after the, the fall of the Roman Empire, that you can't really understand one without the other. So even though it's a church history class, it in many ways feels like a European history class for a lot of this point on. I mean, we're still going to be talking about other parts of the world as well, but a lot of the focus from this point on is going to be the West. And so um, moving straight into the introduction, um, the, the introduction, the Western Catholic Church, and, and listen, I'm being very careful. I'm not saying the Roman Catholic Church. The Western Catholic Church received much of its shape in the Middle Ages. And by the way, Middle Ages is in between the patristic era of the Church Fathers and the Protestant Reformation of the 1500s. So from 500 to 1500 would be a good range to understand the, the Middle Ages. And the reason why I say it's premature to call it Roman Catholicism is because at the, the Roman Catholic Church in name doesn't exist until the year 1054, after the Eastern and Western Church split. And there's certain aspects of Roman Catholicism that aren't here yet. Like you don't have indulgences and you don't have uh, various things like that. But you do have the Pope as the head of the Western Church at this point. You have the monasteries, the monks, the nuns, the priests. You have an understanding of, of communion that is very close to what it will become in Roman Catholicism. So what I would say is you have the house built for Roman Catholicism by the time you get to the five, six hundreds and stuff like that. But it hasn't, all the rooms haven't been filled yet with the things that we come to, to think of and, and, and call Roman Catholicism. So um, pretty much we're going to be taking it a little further. We started the Middle Ages last time. We're going to continue into it. And one of my game plans, just to kind of let you know where I'm going, because the next big thing after this is the Crusades. But there's a couple things we have to understand before we get there. First, we have to understand Middle Ages Europe. That's this lesson. Then we need to understand what's going on in the Eastern Church still, because they're still around at this time. And then we need to understand, so that'll be the next lesson. Then the third one we need to understand is the rise of Islam. You cannot understand church history without understanding the rise of Islam, because once Islam becomes a force, it starts conquering a lot of these Christian lands and becomes um, really a big driver of Christian history. Again, what were the Crusades? It was a Christian attempt to take back what the Muslims took, um, took from Christian societies. And so um, we can't just jump straight to the Crusades. We got to have those, um, those three things uh, first. And so we're going to knock out the first of those today. Um, so pretty much what I'm intending to talk about is first the rise of the Holy Roman Empire um, and exactly what that is. Um, we're going to talk about its decline we're going to talk about the social stability that filled the void in a form called feudalism. And even if you don't recognize the word, I know you've seen enough movies to where you know what this stuff is. And so all these things will be discussed in this lesson. And again, for those who are uh, here for the first time, this is, it's not a Bible study. This is a course on church history. It's church history one where we started like at the very beginning of Jesus's ministry and we're moving all the way to the 1500s. Where we're at right now is like the 800s 
is like the late 700s and early 800s. And so jumping into where I left off last time, we got to talk about the Merovingians. And you might be like, Mero, what? Isn't that like one of the bad guys in the Matrix? No. Well, in the movie, yes. But, uh, but pretty much <clears throat> last time I mentioned to you how when the Roman Empire fell, it's because all these Germanic peoples moved in, displaced the Roman power, and then they set up shop. And the Pope was wise to make an alliance with one of these Gothic groups, a group called the Franks. Okay? And think about the word France. It comes from the word Frank. That's where we get it from. They were a Germanic group that invaded, took over what we call uh, France today. And one of their chieftains, Clovis, became the undisputable ruler of what we now call France. And he became a Christian, uh, made an alliance with the Pope, and he is what you would call a Merovingian king, named after his grandfather, Merovech. That's where these words come from, you know not the matrix. And so what you have is when you get, when this happens in the 500s, yeah, the Merovingians were, were strong. They were the, the ruling family. But what's going to happen is during the sixth century, which is throughout the course of the 500s, they start to lose power. And what happens is the nobles, meaning the, the people who are under the king, but still rich and powerful to where the king depends on them, they start to increase their power and the king starts to lose his. And so what happens is these nobles start acting like uh, little miniature kings. And then what you're eventually going to have is the mayor of the palace um, is going to be the most powerful person in this society. So by the time you get to the year 630, which is the 7th century, the Merovingian kings were now just figureheads. And, and in fact, most of the power was in what we would call a steward, a, a mayor that pretty much ruled on behalf of the king from the king's palace but wasn't a royal person at all. If you're a Lord of the Rings nerd like I am, it will remind you a little bit of the steward of Gondor, right? You have the kings of Gondor, but then you have these stewards that rule in their place. Well, that's what um, this mayor was like. And the name of the family of the mayor were the Carolingians, the Carolingian family. So even though you have a king, a Merovingian king, by the time you get to the 600s, the ones calling the shot are these people that work for them called the Carolingians. Um, and so to understand a little more about this, the Carolingians are going to grow in power as the Merovingians decrease in power. So what these mayors do is they launch a lot of successful campaigns to increase the power of their boss, the Merovingians, because it increases their own power, right? Because they're the mayor the one doing everything on behalf of this king. And one way they expanded their power was they Christianized the pagan tribes of Netherlands and Germany, specifically these tribes. You may or may not have heard of them, but the Frisians, the Hessians, and the Saxons. I remember when I was a kid, like the people who listened to heavy metal and had their hair long, they called themselves Hessians. They named themselves after these people, but... It was dumb. You know, it's like just because you listen to Metallica, you're not this ancient, like, Germanic barbarian, you know, whatever. But anyhow, um, so what they did is they Christianized these tribes. And now what you have is you have an increased population that's Christian, that's uh, loyal specifically um, to this Merovingian family under the Carolingian control. And the reason they did this is they wanted to control these Germans through the church because if these tribes become Christian, they're now under the spiritual authority of the church. And if you think about it, the church is an organization that's not controlled by any state. It's beyond all the various states. And yet, 
it was the Franks in particular that had to deal with the Pope. So if, if these guys become Christian and they're under the authority of the Pope, and yet the Pope's got to deal with these Franks, then it's going to make these people fall under the Franks, right? So you kind of see how there's a lot of politics going on in the Middle Ages. And by the way, this isn't biblical Christianity at this point, but this is still the history of, of the church. So what the Carolingians would do then, since they have this deal with the Pope, is they start picking who are going to be the bishops in the various areas throughout their uh, Frankish kingdom. And to aid in this plan, they're also uh, one of the greatest mayors, Charles Martel. And you may have heard of Charles Martel. He's the one who stops the Muslims from taking over Europe. We'll talk about him when I get to the Muslim lesson. But the Muslims seemed unstoppable. They just conquered and conquered and conquered, got halfway up to Spain. And then at the Battle of Tours, they get beat by this guy. If they would have won in that battle, all of Europe would have been Muslim. You'd all be speaking Arabic. Yeah, I'd be dead because I'm ethnically Jewish. But the, the point is, everybody would be speaking Arabic. Charles Martel is the one who stopped him. It all came down to one battle. So dude's like a, he's an OG, right, in, in the ancient times. Um, and he isn't just famous for the Battle of Tor, Tours. He's also famous because he's going to um, help the Christianization of these pagan tribes. He's going to ask the missionaries from England to come over into the continental Europe and start spreading Christianity because those missionaries from England were the best. And so they did a really good job Christianizing these folks, which then put them under these bishops, which then brought them under um, the Frankish authority. So even though it was technically under the authority of the Merovingian king, that guy's just picking his teeth somewhere. The real power are these Carolingians. Now, a little bit about these, uh, or at least I need to talk about one of these English missionaries. His name was Boniface, um, and his life dates are 680 to, to 754. He was one of the best missionaries, and what he did is he went around spreading the Christianity of that time to the pagans. He also spread papal authority wherever he went. And so a lot of popes kept hooking him up, like rewarding him with higher ranks, titles. Eventually they gave him a very large diocese. Um, and so he had a very successful ministry, but he eventually did get killed by some pagan Frisians in uh, 754. But before he got himself killed, he did bring huge parts of Germany into the Christian faith and under the spiritual authority of Rome. And because of their proximity, that brought them under the political authority of these Carolingians. Now, we got to talk about how um, the Carolingians eventually take over. And it goes down to a guy named Pepin the Short. Um, probably named after Albert. No, I'm just kidding. But, and you know, the, the thing is, we don't know how short Pepin was, but history knows him as Pepin the Short. Now, I looked this up a little bit, and somebody pointed out that the first time that title was given to him was 300 years later, so maybe he was tall, and somebody who didn't like him said he was short, but let's just go with the idea that he was a little guy, like uh, Chris said, like dynamite in a, you know, explosive in a little package, right? So Pepin is going to become the first Carolingian king. After Charles Martel died, the alliance between the papacy and the Carolingians grew stronger under his sons Carlman and Pepin. They were both raised in monasteries. They were genuinely concerned with uh, the Western Catholic Church's growth. And so once their dad dies, 
um, they are going to share the throne of mayor. Okay, not really the throne of the kingdom yet, but they're going to share the position of, of mayor, and they're going to ask that Boniface guy I was telling you about to help them reform the church in the Frankish lands. And since Boniface was the Pope's representative, this only strengthened papal control there, and it only made the Pope like these two even more. Now, Carlman came to the conclusion that he doesn't want to be a politician. He just wants to be a monk. So he's going to leave power and go and be a monk for the rest of his days, which leaves Pepin the Short as the mayor. And eventually he's like, you know what? For the longest time we've been ruling as kings, but we don't have the title of king. In fact, the guy who's called king is Childric III, and he's got no power. He does nothing. And so Pepin at this point saying, you know what? Let's just make it official. Let's get rid of the Merovingians and let the Carolingians become the king. And so he talks to the Pope about it, and the Pope, Pope Zacharias, um, who was a Pope from 741 to 752, he supported this ambition. And in 751, he makes sure that Boniface crowns Pepin as the king. Now, what happens to the Merovingian ruler? Well, typically in the world of politics and dynasty changes, the old usually gets killed. That didn't happen in this case. They just said, all right, you're retired. Go be a monk in a monastery. And that's how the Merovingians went away. They became monks. And now through Pepin, the Carolingians were the new kings of the Franks. Um, now, this is the, so he's the first of the Carolingian dynasty. And what makes this so significant is, at least for church history, is this is the first time a pope claimed he had the power to approve the dethroning of one dynasty and the replacement of it with a new one. And once he does this, and it works, and no one objects to it, for the rest of history, people are going to assume, oh, this is a power that the Pope has given to him by God, right? And, and that's why, as you get further into history, the Popes are going to be a lot more powerful than they are at this early stage. Um, and another thing this meant is this new royal family in France, who does it owe its, its position to? They owe it to the Pope, which is only going to keep them loyal to the Pope, and it's going to keep their army uh, wanting to protect the Pope. Now, Pepin's uh, ascendancy to the throne only benefits the papacy, right? Uh, well, it benefits Pepin as well, but it definitely benefits the papacy. Pope Zacharias had a political reason to support this. Last time I mentioned that one of the Germanic tribes that was harassing people in Europe were the Lombards, and they took over northern Italy, and at this point they were able to expel the Byzantine governor and his armies. And if you remember, the Byzantine Empire is the Eastern Christian Empire, the last remnants of the old Roman Empire. They had an army in northern Italy protecting, really, the Pope and Rome and all that from these, these Germanic barbarians. But eventually the Lombards kicked the Byzantines out, and then they set their eyes on Rome itself. Um, and so pretty much, Zacharias is like, if I could hook Pe Pepin up here, then Pepin will be loyal to me. His army, which is a strong army, will be at my disposal, and they could protect us from these Lombards. So eventually Zacharias dies, his successor successor is Pope Stephen II, uh, 752 to 757 was when he was Pope. And he's going to strengthen this alliance even more. Um, he's going to strengthen it even more. So what's going to happen, and by the way, because of that, well, hold on, I'm getting ahead of myself. He's going to strengthen it by making sure that Pepin gets coronated a second time, but this time by the Pope. Right? Last time it was Boniface, the Pope's representative. But no, I'm going to put the crown on your head. 
And uh, in return for that, Pepin invaded Italy and put the smack down, in a sense, on the Lombards and got them to say, hey, keep your hands off Rome, you know, leave it alone. And they agree, the Lombards do, but then two years later, they break their agreement and... Uh, and they're going to they're going to attack or they're going to attack Rome and so then Pepin's going to attack them and pretty much completely defeats them. In fact, the Lombards lost most of their land in Italy and what Pepin did is he then gifted it to Pope Stephen. Now the technical term of this is called the donation of Pepin and it placed a lot of cities and a lot of land in Italy under the control of the Pope. If you want to know how much, take Italy one fifth of it in central northern Italy now belong to the Pope. And that, that's huge, because if the Pope is not just a spiritual leader anymore, but he's got a big chunk of land that he's the ruler of, that also makes him a politician. That makes him a king, in a sense. He is the ruler of that land that was given to him. So now the papacy isn't just a religious guy, it's a state. It's a state, it's a church, it's all wrapped into one, and because it's a state and he's a head of state, now he can start making political alliances and treaties. That's not something you ever hear the Bible talk about in terms of pastors making treaties with nations, but that's where they're at now. This is what's happening. That's how, how powerful um, he becomes because of this. It increases his power. Uh, now, the thing is, Byzantium was very upset at this. The, the real emperor of Rome in Constantinople was like, wait a second, you can't make the patriarch of Rome or the bishop of Rome, you know, you can't give him his own state. Uh, but Pepin didn't care. He's like, I don't even know you guys over in the east and I have no obligation to you. So he ignored their objections and the Pope gets to keep this land. So three significant results of that. This is going to sever the link between the papacy and the Byzantine Empire. The popes in the past depended on that emperor in the east. Now they don't depend on, on him anymore. They got the Frankish ruler, Pepin, to provide them protection. So this is going to politically separate them from the east. And as we have been seeing, the eastern and western churches had already been drifting apart at this point. They were very different culturally. Now they're different politically. So that is going to speed their separation. And when we get to the year 1054, they're going to break from each other and say, hey, you're not the real church we are. And I don't want to get ahead of myself, but that's coming, right? Now, the second thing is it sealed the political, religious, and military bond between the popes and the Frankish kings. Uh, the Frankish monarch now replaced the emperor of, of Byzantine or Byzantium, and the Frankish kingdom became the center of Rome's diplomatic uh, and spiritual world. And then the third thing is this gives the papacy, as I said, a large independent state. Um, and some popes are going to become so absorbed in their secular business that they lose interest in theology. They don't care anymore about it. So pretty big deal there. Now, I do want to talk about one of the biggest instances of fraud in history. It's called the Donation of Constantine. Um, you guys should remember who Constantine was, the first Christian emperor of the Roman Empire back in three, um, you know, I think it was 312. He legalized Christianity and then made it the favored religion a few years later. That Constantine, you know, the one who starts making Rome Christian. Well, fast forward four centuries 
<laughs> in the middle of the 8th century, all of a sudden this document surfaces called the Donation of Constantine, and it claims to be a letter written by Constantine himself to Pope Sylvester I in three four, you know, he was the Pope from 314 to 335. And what the letter claims is that Constantine was dying of leprosy and no one could heal him. So he went to the Pope in Rome and the Pope healed him. And Constantine was so thankful for this that he told the Pope that, one, you are superior to the emperor, you know, me, Constantine, you, you have greater power than me, and I'm going to give you the center of Italy for you to rule, and you have control over all of Western Europe. Okay, that is what the donation of Constantine says. That, that's what the, the letter um, supposedly, well, the letter itself does say that. Again, this surfaces when Stephen II was the Pope. This surfaces right after Pepin gives him the land, and then all of a sudden here's this older document where Constantine gave him the land, the very first Christian Roman emperor. And not only this land, but all of Western Europe. This, is, this letter magically appears at the time when the Eastern emperor is crying foul, and all of a sudden Pope Stephen's like, hey, you don't like that Pepin's awarding me this land, but look, this goes back to Constantine, your ancestor. And then everybody's like, oh, oh, oh. And so for the next 700 years, this legitimized the Pope as a political authority and the supreme religious authority in all of Western Europe. Now, here's the rub on this. It is obviously a fraud. Now, you, you might think, like, how could they not tell back then? Well, it sounded for, at the time... Not only was it convenient, but it looked legitimate, and they didn't have the historiographical skills that, that we have today. But you fast forward to the Renaissance, and you have this Renaissance scholar named Lorenzo Valla. I believe it was, yeah, 1440. He definitively proved this was a fraud. And this guy worked for the Pope, too. You know, kind of dangerous to be working for the guy that you're now proving that his whole office has been lying for a long time about this. What... Lorenzo Valla did is he looked very closely at the language. In the time of Constantine, the Latin that was spoken was a very particular kind of Latin. 400 years later, the Latin's going to be different. Why? Because you've had German peoples, Gothic peoples, invade Europe, and they've lived there for now 300 years. And so Constantine did not know any, uh, any Gothic words. That wasn't in his vocabulary. Okay, but, but what's happening with this is when Lorenzo Valla looks at it, he's like, wait a second, this document's got all sorts of words that are Gothic. This document is the way people wrote Latin, guess when? In the, in the 700s, at the time of Pope Stephen, the first person to ever claim he has this letter. It's, so I guess what I'm saying is if, if somebody pulled out a document today and say, hey, this goes back to Abraham Lincoln. We found a missing diary letter of Abraham Lincoln, you know, and, uh, and people then start looking closely at it. And if it has emojis in it, then you know it wasn't written by Abraham Lincoln. Now, emojis come into existence, what, only we're talking, you know, 150 years after Abraham Lincoln. We're talking 400 years from the time of Constantine to the time of Stephen, a lot of things are going to get added to the language. Now, again, people in the 700s didn't look for that. Lorenzo Valla in the 1400s looked very closely, and he's like, all right, I smell a rat. This is clearly the case. This is a fraud. 
But what are you going to say after 700 years? Is, there, is everybody going to say, hey, Pope, give us this, uh, this land of central Italy back and, and, you know, you don't have the spiritual authority over the Western Empire anymore? No. I mean, it's been the political reality for 700 years. So the fraud worked. Now, I will tell you this. In the 1880s, Italy unifies as a nation, and King Victor Emmanuel III takes all this land away from the Pope. And when the Pope complains, he's like, what? You got this off fraud. Um, and then you know who gives it back to the Pope, or at least a little part of it? Any guesses? Mussolini, the dictator. So just interesting stuff there. But anyhow, Donation Constantine, big piece of, of, of fraud there. So now let's get to the, the real big shot of this time, Charlemagne. You may have heard of this guy before. Um, it just means Charles the Great or Carlos the Great. Chuck the Big, I don't know, he's just Charlemagne, he was, he was the man. Uh, when, when Pepin died, the throne was shared by his son, Carlman and Charles. Carlman died in 771, leaving Charles as the sole ruler. And he's going to reign for 43 years and be one of the most significant men in all of history. Uh, definitely one of those game changers in history. His reign is from 771 to 814, and he created the first great Western empire since the fall of Rome in, in the 470s. Um, so it's a big deal. Uh, now, again, I said he's influential, probably one of the most colossal figures in all of European history. He's been nicknamed the Moses of the Middle Ages because he gets credit for uh, leading a lot of the Germanic peoples out of their barbarism and giving them a new law. Now, you might say, well, I thought a lot of them were already Christian by this point. They were, but they were still backward and barbaric. And he's going to institute reforms that makes them just as sophisticated as uh, the Roman-like folks. Uh, and so uh, I will tell you this. He is very comparable to Constantine. Constantine was the first Christian emperor of the Roman Empire. This guy rebuilds a new Roman Empire in the West, and he's going to rebuild it on a Christian basis, at least the Christianity of, of Western Europe at that time. Now, a little bit about him. He was a large man, uh, fierce a great warrior. He was not a king that sat in the castle while his armies went out to battle. He was on the front lines with them. Um, and again, this, he just did his business. He fought a lot of wars, probably um, killed a lot of enemies in, in, in the midst of battle. He was a man with a lot of energy, but when he was back home, he was simple. He wasn't like a, you know, a pampered person that has to have all these luxuries. He was very generous with what he owned. Um, he was just in his rule, loyal to his friends, and almost everybody loved him. Char Charlemagne did not have a lot of enemies in-house. He was also sincerely devoted to Western Christianity, and his goal was to take all these Western nations emerging. And last, time, last week I explained those Western nations, like where they came from, where you get the Germans, where you get Spain, where you, where you get these people, right? The French, the Italians. A lot of it is, um, is these people, these Germans moving in, mixing with Celts, mixing with Latins, and so forth, and then you get these new cultures. He wants to unite them all, under Christianity in a single unified Christian empire. And, you know, historians all agree he was an incredible leader. But I will say this, he did have one flaw, and it was with the ladies, and that seems to be the case with a, a lot of leaders. Um, now, he wasn't acting like Solomon, per se, um, but here's the thing. Every time he wanted a new woman, he divorced the one he was with. By the time his fifth wife died, he just stopped marrying and took a number of concubines. And, um, and it's interesting because he got away with it. But then again, the Pope needed him. Now, 
I'm going to talk a, a lot about him, and I'm going to break it up into various things he's known for. So first, I want to talk about his military achievements. Um, almost his whole reign was spent fighting wars of conquest to build this giant Christian empire in Western Europe. And every war he fought, he won except for one. I don't know much about the one he didn't win, but it obviously didn't um, set him back too much. Um, so the first thing he, he did was he rescued the papal states from newly renewed Lombard aggression. Um, and this was their final defeat. So Pepin defeated them a, a, a while back, gave their territory to the Pope. They now were in a position and strong enough to take that territory back. Charlemagne shows up, completely defeats their army, kills their king, and then says, by the way, he's not going to be replaced with his son. I am now the king of the Lombards. I'm the king of the Franks. I'm the king of the Lombards. I'm the king of both. They are now united in one nation. So he's creating an empire at this point. And if he's the ruler and he soundly defeated them and they're now all obeying him and the Pope is saying, yes, yes, this is true. This is the man. Then, um, then yeah, that solves that problem. The Lombards are never going to bother the Pope again. Now, the Muslims try to make a comeback in Spain and, and try to do a, a, another attempt to drive up through Spain. And just like uh, his great-grandfather, Charles Martel, or great-great-grandfather, he stops the Muslims in Spain. And again, they were fierce warriors, but Charlemagne and his army was fiercer. So they pushed them even further south, and he, he ruled in Spain all the way down to Barcelona. Um, up in the north in Germany, he annexed uh, uh, Bavaria, which... Later, if you fast forward, that's where Hitler set up his, uh, you know, the headquarter of the Nazis and all their like luxurious mansions with gold plated elevators that was in Bavaria. So anyway, the first one to really take that and, and make it part of a European empire was uh, was Charlemagne. Um, he fought and crippled the pagan Avar people in what's uh, what was called Danube then, uh, which is Hungary today. Uh, and his most intense fighting, his longest wars, were against the Saxons. And I talked about them last time. The reason why um, people from England are called Anglo-Saxon is because the tribes, the Anglos, the Jutes, and the Saxons invaded England, took over, ruled it, um, mixed with some of the Celtic people there. And, you know, that's why the British folks are called Anglo-Saxons. Well, some of the Saxons stayed in Germany, and he's going to fight a lot of wars against them. 18 campaigns over 30 years. It was brutal, savage fighting. But he finally wins by forcing them to, into small groups, and he makes them move. Kind of like what the Assyrian rulers used to do. Takes them in like small groups, moves them into other areas of the empire where they're now a minority and they can't really rise up because they have no power anymore. And then once they were moved, he gave them a choice. Receive Christian baptism or die. Um, now, what's interesting is the church pushed back on that. They're like, well, hold on, Charlemagne, you can't just kill people for not getting baptized. You know, the sword doesn't make somebody believe. And so he's like, all right. And so in 797, he outlawed killing people for not becoming Christians. You can kill them for other reasons, just not that. Um, so his military conquests were very successful. I mean, you could see right here on this bottom map just how much, uh, how much territory he ruled with that big, like, I don't know what color that is, orange, just that orange blob right there in the middle of Europe. It extends down into Spain, extends halfway down into Italy, uh, halfway into Eastern Europe. Um, so it's, it's a lot of land. Now, 
This is the birth of what historians call the Holy Roman Empire. Later on in history, Voltaire will make fun of it by saying it's not holy, it's not Roman, and it's not an empire. Um, but at this point, it was at least an empire. But it wasn't holy and it wasn't Roman. Um, although Charlemagne thought it was holy. So pretty much they look at his conquests and the wide extent of his kingdom, and they say, this dude recreated the Roman Empire of the West. It fell in the 470s, but this man's remade it. And so in the year 800, on Christmas Day, he was crowned as Caesar. And in fact, the Pope took the old crowns of the old Caesars and put it on this guy's head on Christmas Day during the Mass in the year 800. Now, Charlemagne was already kneeling because he was receiving communion, and then the Pope's like and put it on his head. It was very interesting because the Pope was doing something very political here. Charlemagne did not like how this happened, Um, but it it did happen, right? This is how it went down. So Pope Leo III suddenly placed the crown on his head and proclaimed Charles um, to be Charles Augustus, and he is now the Caesar, the Roman Empire. And by the way, does anybody know what the, the kings of Germany were called when there were kings of Germany? Kaiser. You might know that from the World Wars. Well, the Holy Roman Empire, after it falls later, is still going to exist in a small form in Germany. And the way the Germans say, pronounce Caesar is Kaiser. So just those connections, it, it drives all the way forward. Kind of miss being a history teacher. I could probably win a lot of money on these game shows if they just stuck to history. But then they get to pop culture, and I'm out. But anyhow, so... Uh, <laughs> So, so getting back to this, um, this is the birth of the Holy Roman Empire, taking this, this huge chunk of land where all these peoples are united under a single ruler. Now he's got the old crown on his head. It's the, it's the Holy Roman Empire. Now, this act of the Pope declared that Charlemagne was not just the king of the Franks anymore, but the heir of all the old Caesars of Rome. He is now the political master of everybody in Western Europe. They're all supposed to fall under him, at least according to the Pope. Now, what does the emperor of Constantinople say? You know, the, the Byzantine emperors, they were very angry. They're like, we're the heirs of the Roman Empire. Constantine moved the empire over here, and we're his descendants. This guy's not the emperor, but everybody in the West is saying, no, Charlemagne is the true emperor. And so this is after the Charlemagne of, uh, or the coronation of Charlemagne, this is just going to push the East and the West further apart. It's going to make any unity between them impossible. And it's not like the Byzantines could beat Charlemagne. They were being decimated by the Muslim invasions, and Charlemagne proved he could beat the Muslims. So nothing was going to knock Charlemagne off his, uh, off his throne. Um, now, I was saying that Leo's move showed that the, the, it was very political because it showed that this new Holy Roman Emperor owed his position to the Pope because it was the Pope that put the crown on his head, which made it look like the Pope was the one who had the authority to make a Caesar, to promote the man from Frankish king to Caesar of the West. And so where does it look like political authority now comes from? The top religious guy in the Western church, the Pope. Now, Charlemagne was upset at this. He's like, it's not true. This guy didn't make me Caesar. God made me Caesar, and all this guy did was rubber stamp it. God made me Caesar because I conquered everything, and and I'm trying to spread Christian ideals. So don't you think that the Pope is the one that that made me this way? And so to to try to um, counteract the Pope's move, um, he, he coronates his own son as his heir, as the Caesar. But even though he did this, 
all the subjects throughout Western Europe thought, it didn't matter what Charlemagne did, they thought, nope, this can only come from the Pope. So that Pope's sneak little action, when this dude's about to take a, you know, the cracker for communion, and that's why he's kneeled in the Pope, in his back pocket's like, and puts the crown on his head, that set the trajectory of papal power for the next thousand years. So dirty, yes, but my hat goes off in terms of cleverness to Pope Leo III. Um, because Charlemagne was never able to, you know, convince people that that's not how it works. Now, another thing to know about Charlemagne is he improves the education and culture of Europe as a whole. It's called the Carolingian Renaissance. Um, and, and what he does is he gathers around him the greatest intellects of the empire. And if you remember what I said last week, um, the, the monasteries, when they grew in sophistication, they were the repositories of all knowledge. They kept all the ancient Roman and Greek writings, even the pagan ones, um, all the Christian writings. They, they were the, the libraries of, of Europe. They, so eventually you hit a point where the monks are the most educated people in Europe, and Charlemagne wants the best and the brightest of them to be around him because he wants to build this this strong Christian culture and intellectual culture throughout the empire. And so again, historians call it the Carolingian Renaissance, and from it, the following things emerged. First, Latin was refined. So if you want to know where we get our letters, like where our letters get shaped, like why does the S look like an S and the A look like an A? Why do you have capital letters that start a word and then lowercase letters that, that um, finish the word? It all started here. Carolingian Renaissance. You write the way you write because of these guys, okay? Um, so I don't know if you, you knew that, but now you do. So you can wow people at the dinner table, you know, uh, Latin, well, never mind. But anyhow, so the current form of our letters, it's called the Carolingian minuscule. You could say that. Do you know that you use the Carolingian minuscule? <laughs> Can't believe you didn't know that. Anyhow, so all educated people in Europe also are going to speak Latin. And Latin's going to be refined. It's going to become a little more pristine during this time. And it doesn't matter what country you were from um, in Europe, uh, what your first language was, if you were educated, you also spoke Latin. Kind of reminds me of, of one of my favorite uh, scenes from Braveheart when uh, he's in the tent and he's, I don't know if you've seen that movie, but it's like one of the best movies ever made. And um, he's trying to negotiate with the princess of, of England, and then like they start talking in Latin thinking he wouldn't understand it because he's just an uneducated barbarian, never tell lies, and they're like, oh, you know. So all that comes from this time. That's when Latin becomes such an important language in, in Europe. Um, Charlemagne also had an army of monks that... Um, what these monks did is they would copy and copy books. They didn't have printers back then, copy machines. The printing press wasn't made yet. So if, he said all the lower monks, their job is just to keep copying and copying and copying down these books. Most of our ancient copies of Greek and Roman works come from this. If these guys didn't do this, all that stuff would have been lost to history. So the Christians even preserved pre-Christian knowledge, um, which, is, which is kind of interesting. So the monasteries then became the repository for these libraries um, that contained both the ancient and current knowledge. It, during this time, uh, another thing that the Carolingian Renaissance achieved was a new standard edition of the Vulgate was codified during this time. Everybody was using St. Jerome's Vulgate, but there were some Vulgates that were a little different from others, and so it, there became a standard edition that was the same across the board. 
uh, spellings, all that kind of stuff. Because, you know, uh, we take for granted that there's a right way to spell words. But I could tell you something. In schools back then, you didn't have spelling tests, especially in England, because this region spells this word different than that region and that region. And do you know it was even the same in America? That's why we have a Webster's Dictionary, because a guy named Webster said, all right, this is, this is too much. We all need to spell our words the same way, and we don't want to copy those Brits you know, across the ocean. So we came up with our own American way of writing words after the British came up with their own British way of writing the words. So, um, so they did that with the Vulgate long before, you know, back in the, the ninth century. Um, Charlemagne also pushed education. He demanded that in each parish, and I'll explain what a parish is in a second, he, he said that all the male children, so sorry females, this didn't include you, but all the male children, whether rich or poor, were to be taught logic, language, math, all that kind of stuff by the monks. And so it was kind of a universal education system for, for boys. Um, and, and what a parish is, because, you know, as Protestants, we don't use that language, but Catholics do. A parish was like a small unit of land, a territory, that could be taken care of by one church. If it's too big and there's too many people to where it needs more than one church, then it's not a parish anymore. And so, like, if you're in this area and this area has the one church and your tithes go to that one church, that was also your school, um, at least if you, were, if you were a boy. Now... That does not mean that education provided opportunities for you to raise through society. It did not. Um, the only way you could raise through society is if you became a monk. Because if you became a monk and you were a gifted monk, you could become a bishop. And the bishops were very political in this time. But otherwise, the class you were born into, you were stuck in. And I'll be talking about that at the end. Um, in addition to the cultural achievements, there's also going to be religious reforms under uh, Charlemagne's rule. And I, I like this painting because it shows the king, and what is he holding? He's holding the castle and the church in his hand. It lets you know what he thought about himself. And I'll talk a little more about that in, in a few minutes. But Charlemagne considered himself to be both the political and spiritual leader of his empire. He, he thought the Pope was under him. He thought like the Eastern emperors did. Um, and he said, look at ancient Israel. The kings were in charge. But, of course, the popes would be like, no, because prophets could correct the kings. You know, and so they would debate back and forth on this. But him seeing himself as like a king of Israel, he decreed fasts and set the dates on when religious fasts would happen. He sat in religious councils and made decisions and forced the bishops to agree with his decision at times. He appointed bishops throughout the empire, which would, uh, it, that should be the pope's job. But Charlemagne was doing it. He appointed the abbots, who were the heads of the monasteries. And he imposed a moral code on the clergy. A lot of the priests and bishops were starting to be very immoral during this time. He's like, no, not in my empire. They're going to be like, you know, moral guys. And people respected him because that's the pope's job. And yet here you have the, the emperor, who's the one cleaning house, morally speaking. Um, and so you guys notice how like uh, Catholics and... Um, you know, Catholic priests and bishops wear the long black robes. It's called a Cossack. He's the first one to say they're no longer going to dress like everybody else. Before Charlemagne, priest, bishop, regular people, there was no different clothes for them. But now anybody who's a, a minister of God is going to wear this long black cloak. And, and some of them, and this was coming more from like the Celt, Celtic Christianity, they were starting to um, have those haircuts 
called tonsures where you know how like they'd shave a bald spot but then leave hair on the side which it's like come on man some of us were cursed with that but here they are trying to make themselves look like that you know but it was just one more thing where you could tell them apart from from the laity um another thing is sunday was declared legally as the sabbath and this is where I think biblically it's just wrong. Shabbat, Saturday is the Sabbath. Sunday is the Lord's Day. Sunday is a day of worship. Shabbat's just a day of rest. But they conflated the two and thought the day of worship and the day of rest were the same. And so now, by pain of death, you can't work on Sunday anymore. And, and of course, the Catholics, they can't kill you anymore. Um, but, you know, in Roman Catholicism, Sunday's the Sabbath. And same with a lot of Protestants as well. And even in America... Um, the influence of that was pretty deep. It wasn't until the 60s and the 1970s that uh, blue laws or blue codes started being overturned. And blue codes were just the rules that said on Sundays, businesses can't stay open. You can't get groceries on a Sunday. The only thing open on Sundays were hospitals. That was even until the 1960s, 1970s in our country. And that goes back to Charlemagne, Charlemagne, Charles the Great. Um, so you got that, and also the payment of tithes was a, uh, it was universal, it was compulsory, everyone had to do it. Um, now, today, you know, the tithes would be in money because that's our medium of exchange. Um, money was rarely used as a medium of exchange back then, so your tithe was corn, hay, a cow, you know, something, but it was 10% of your increase, and that's what would be given uh, to, to the church, and refusal to pay it. Um, resulted in excommunication. Now, on one hand, some people will be like, well, that violates the scripture because it's compulsory and it's not supposed to be forced. Um, but this is what happens when you mix church and state, right? Because the church was providing what today we would call a state function. It was providing public education. And so that costs money, takes time, right? So the tithes were funding that, but it was also funding um, the service of the church. And so it, it's a very messy thing when you have the two get put together. Now, there was also a big theological controversy called adoptionism during the time of Charlemagne, and this is not the same adoptionism of the early church. In the early church, the adoptionism was the idea that Jesus was not really God, and he wasn't really the Son of God. But when John the Baptist baptized him, at that moment, the Son of God possessed him, and he became the Son of God until he was on the cross, and then the Son of God abandoned him so he could die on the cross, which is really dumb. Okay, but that was the ancient adoptionism. This adoptionism was different. In fact, this kind of adoptionism has made a comeback today in some uh, Reformed theologians, which blows my mind. But it, it, the idea of this one is that um, Jesus is still the eternal Son of God. He's always been the Son of God, the divine part of Jesus. But the human part of Jesus, they say, had to be adopted as a human Son of God, just like all believers are adopted. And that's not an orthodox position. Now, here's, here's where the, the controversy really stemmed from. It's, and this goes back to some of the early church um, controversies. What Did sonship belong to the person or the nature, because Jesus is one person, the second person of the Trinity, but he has two natures, a divine nature and a human nature. If sonship belongs to the nature, then he's two different kinds of sons. He's the eternal son of God that's not adopted, but as a human son of God, he would have to be adopted. 
Okay, but if sonship belongs to the person, not the nature, well, Jesus is one person, so he has one sonship, the divine sonship, because God is the eternal father, Jesus is the eternal son. Now, biblically speaking, and going back to the the Chalcedonian um, creed, the, the Orthodox position's right, that, that sonship belongs to the person, not the nature. Um, so again, this was, a, a, I wouldn't say a heresy, but it was an error that needed to be um, controlled and put down, and, and it was successfully opposed by Charlemagne. He was on the, the right position. But I do find it strange that this one's made a comeback. It's not a heresy like the ancient adoptionism was, but it is still just weird, and you would be surprised when you find out some of the big names that promote this today, um, like Sinclair Ferguson. You know, um, he holds this kind of, uh, this kind of adoptionism. Uh, there's a couple guys at Westminster Theological Seminary that do. Again, it's not a heresy, but it, it's confusing categories, um, thinking that sonship belongs to na- the natures rather than the, the one person. But anyhow, um, Charlemagne versus the popes, because if he believes he's in charge of the pope, but the pope believes, I made you, I could break you, then you're going to have some conflict here. So again, his view of his own authority is going to bring them into, you know, um, headlocks with, uh, they're going to lock horns with the, with the Pope. He believed God gave him the authority to regulate church affairs within his territory. Uh, and a lot of the churchmen, a lot of the most famous bishops agreed. And remember, this isn't unique to them because uh, this is what the Eastern Church has been doing from the beginning. This is what Constantine did at the beginning. He's like, I can appoint bishops. I can make decisions for the church. And the Council of Chalcedon back in 451, the very one that, that gave us the Chalcedonian Creed, that gave us the very precise doctrine of Christ. Now, of course, the Bible gives us the information about Christ, but the creed put it together in almost a perfect way. Um, That same council that came up with that amazing creed also said that the emperor has authority to regulate church affairs within the empire. So this is something the East had been doing for a long time. Why this is significant in the West is the East doesn't have a pope. The East has four guys that are equal bishops throughout the Eastern Empire. The West only has one. So It would have gone without controversy in the East, but it's going to be a lot of controversy in the West. You're going to have a battle between the bishop and king in the West. That's something the East never dealt with. It's something the West will always deal with. Now, Charlemagne, as I was telling you, he saw himself as the Pope's superior, and he's going to do certain things that that make that clear. In 790, he decreed that the Western Church's position on the or he declared the Western Church's position on the iconoclastic controversy in the East without consulting the Pope. Now, you probably don't know what I'm talking about on that yet, but you will, because in the next lesson, I'm finally going to talk about that controversy. To give you the, the long story short, in the East, they had a lot of icons, pictures of Jesus, Mary, and so forth. And some people in the East said, this is idolatry. You are worshiping these pictures. We're not supposed to make any images. So it becomes this big controversy, like it gets violent in the East. Um, Eventually, the side that wins is the icon side, that it's not idolatry. When Jesus became flesh, he took on an image. And so now we are able to create images to help us think about Jesus and imagine him 
but we, we don't worship the image, but we, we revere what the image points to. That was the, the position that the East landed on. Well, Charlemagne, because this reaches all the way to the West, he says, he comes up with a different position. He says that, that uh, we don't think you should bow to these. You, you, nobody should be bowing to them. Nobody should be praying to it. Nobody should be saying that these icons, you know, cause miracles. If any miracle comes from one, it's, it's a demon. It's not from the icon. Whereas in the East, they said, no, the icons really can do these things. Um, and so, he, but he did say that it is appropriate to adorn church buildings with pictures of Jesus and Mary and the apostles because a lot of people can't read. And if you could depict uh, biblical scenes with, uh, with art, then that helps people know what these biblical stories are all about. So he was okay with that. Um, and, and we should revere the cross. That is the only symbol that should be revered. But by him saying that you shouldn't bow to it and credit it with miracles, he's taking a position different than what the East landed on and what the Eastern emperor finally, um, you know, settled on. And so, again, this is just one more thing that's going to lead to a separation later. Now, I will tell you this. When you get to the 10th century, which would be the 900s, the Western church is going to ignore what Charlemagne said here, and they're going to get even crazier with the icons than the East. They're going to start making statues. They're going to believe the statues do miracles. They're going to bow to the statues. A lot of the stuff you see today, um, that's going to be in the West in the, in the 10th century. <clears throat> and, and the Eastern folks are going to say, hey, these guys have gone too far. Um, but, but anyhow, um, by Charlemagne making this decision, this should have been the Pope's decision, and he was mad. Like, how dare Charlemagne make this, this decision and declare for all of Western Europe what our position is? But Charlemagne said, hey, I'm the king. I could do that. And then the second example of Charlemagne um, really flexing and, and showing he assumes himself to be greater than the Pope is it was against Pope Leo III's veto. And this is something I'm only going to give you a little talk about today because I'll have to talk about it more before or later, but it's called the Philo K Clause. And you may have heard of this, you may not have, but you should have heard of the Nicene Creed because we talked about it, right? The Nicene Creed was the Trinitarian Creed put out by the Council of Constantinople in 381. In the Western Church, what certain theologians did is they added a clause. The Nicene Creed says that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father. And in the West, they started adding the phrase, and the Son. The Holy Spirit eternally proceeds from the Father and the Son. And when the East found out about that, they were like, how dare you? You guys in the West have no right to change a creed that we all agreed on together. Okay, you just can't do that. Yet you think you can, we have a problem with that. And then the second thing is the East said also the Holy Spirit does not proceed from the Father and the Son, but only from the Father. Now, I happen to think from the Gospel of John that the Western Church was right on this. And so did Charlemagne. So Charlemagne says, you know what, we're adding it. You don't have to add it in the East, but we're, in our Nicene creeds, we're adding it. And when we recite this in our churches, we're going to have this filioque clause um, added to it. Um, now, Pope Leo vetoed that. And, and, and here's the thing. Leo agreed in principle with Charlemagne, but he vetoed it because he agreed with the East that the West can't change a creed. You know, the creed is ecumenical. That's everybody together. The West can't just go and change it. So Leo might be like, I think that clause should be there, but we can't change it like this. And so he vetoed it. And then Charlemagne's like, who cares? 
put it in the creeds. And so again, he overrode the Pope again. And by the way, this controversy is going to be what finally causes the Eastern and Western churches to split in 1054. Eventually, this is going to be the one. They're going to have a couple hundred years more where they're tolerating each other over this, but eventually it comes to a head. Um, and so, yeah, yeah, uh, Charlemagne's position there. Now, a lot of this points to, I guess you could say, a common trope in history, which is st- church versus state and state versus church. And in European history, we're kind of seeing the relationship, like what it's going to be, it begins here. It was an uneasy relationship. There's going to be a lot of versions of this conflict throughout the Middle Ages. Kings often said, I've been appointed by God. You may have heard of the divine right of kings. This is what's going to be believed, and it's going to hit an even more extreme form in the 15 and 1600s, that we're appointed by God. And so the popes, they're just our advisors, We're the ones appointed by God to do the ruling. They're just to be our spiritual advisors, like kind of like um, like I'm a chaplain in the Army Reserves. I work for a general. Um, He doesn't listen to me. I don't get to tell the general what to do. The general could be like, chaplain, I want you to do take us on a spiritual hike up this mountain. I'm going to be like, all right, you know, or whatever. But the, the, the commander has that authority, but I'm his special advisor. You know, so my job is to advise them on religion, morals, are we violating just war theory? Is there an ethical violation in in what he's trying to do? I'm to advise him on that. And he could still tell me to pound sand, you know, and if he's wrong, then the lawyers will get him, you know. But but the the point is, that's how the king saw themselves. The pope was just a chaplain um, to them. But the popes, in contrast, said, no, no, we need to be independent from the secular authority or from state control. And they said the only way we could secure that is if the state's under our control. And that's why Leo crowned Charlemagne, to say, hey, their power comes from us. It's not so much because they necessarily want to control the state. They just want to prevent the state from controlling them as happened regularly in the East. And so this is going to go back and forth for a long time. Um, And as long as state and church, and by the way, we don't have as much of this in our country because we're the first country to officially separate church and state. And, um, and, And I know that the progressive left tries to use that to say that means religion needs to be in your home. No, religion permeated every aspect of our society, even with the separation of church and state. What the separation of church and state meant is there's no Church of America. You have a Church of England. You had the Roman Catholic Church, which was the Church of France and Spain and Italy. Um, You had the Lutheran Church, which was the church of much of northern Germany. Um, And if you weren't part of that church, or in Scotland it was the Presbyterian Church, if you weren't part of those churches, you could be persecuted. And even in the American colonies, I don't know if you know this, but in Massachusetts, the Presbyterians burned down Baptist churches and publicly killed them, and they were allowed to. You know, so Baptists were always running around. Now, we're Baptists, and we're like Presbyterians, but, I mean, we get along with them now. But why do we get along with them now? Because when it came to our First Amendment, you know, the idea is like, you know what? There's going to be no Church of America. There's going to be religious liberty, separation of church and state. And it worked great until the 1960s, and some liberals came along and tried to use this wall of separation idea to push religion out of the uh, public sector. That's never the intent. The intent was to prevent this kind of stuff. Because what was taken for granted back then was that um, church and state are two aspects of one united society. So you have one society, the Holy Roman Empire, And it has a church and it has a state. And if you're a citizen of the church, you're also a citizen of the state. 
And if you're a citizen of the state, you're a citizen of the church. That's why you were born as a Holy Roman citizen, but you were also born as a Catholic. You could not separate the two. They went hand in hand. And whenever you have these two aspects united in one society, they're going to fight each other. And that's what happens in, throughout European history. And there's going to be two terms to describe the two sides. If you thought the Pope should have more authority, you were called a papalist. If you thought that the emperor should have more authority, you were called an imperialist. And at various times in history, the imperialist will be on top, and at other times, the papalist will be on top. And this kind of stuff will still be coming up during the Renaissance and even through the Reformation. Now, a little bit about uh, Western worship under uh, the Holy Roman Empire. Um, education in the West, even though it was improved by the Carolin- uh, Carolingian Renaissance, it was still weak compared to the days before Rome fell. And the, the typical priests were only as educated as educated society. And if educated society was less educated than it was in the past, then you end up with a lot of clergy in the West that were uh, just, they, they were weak sauce, for lack of a better term. And so the worship services in the Catholic Church became activity-driven rather than preaching-driven. So in other words, it was all about the sacraments. When you went to the church, it was to receive Eucharist, or actually what you're going to learn is to watch Eucharist, except on Christmas. Um, and it's to observe baptisms. But they didn't preach. They didn't preach. They didn't write sermons anymore. They didn't know how. They lost that, that, that educational level. Now, in the Eastern Empire, they were still writing their own sermons. They're still preaching them. But what's going to happen is they start preaching homilies in the West. Now, I used to think homily was just a fancy word for sermon. It's not. A homily is technically a sermon written by somebody else. So there's a couple big shots in the West. They write the sermons, and then the rest of the priests have to preach their sermons. And that's when you start, for those of you who grew up Catholic, you might remember that every year it seemed like every church all across, all the Catholic churches in your area were all preaching the same texts and and a lot of the same sermons. Somebody else wrote that homily, and then the priest had to preach it. It didn't start because that's what the Bible tells us to do. That started in the time of Charlemagne because the priests were dumb or uneducated, not dumb. I'm sure they had the capability if there was somebody there who could teach them. Um, but yeah, that's that. so that started then and carried on until really recent times. Um, now, Charlemagne also wanted all liturgies, meaning like the order of worship in all churches in his empire to be the same. And so it was. Um, there were two different kinds. There was the Gallic kind that he had removed, and it was only his kind. And this is when they start calling the worship service the Mass. Now, there's debate as to why they call it the Mass. Um, the best idea is uh, after they took the Lord's Supper, uh, they would then say, you're dismissed. And the word Mass comes from Misa, which means dismissal. So that's where they, they think the word came from. Um, This is also when you started having high mass and low mass. And you might say, what's the difference? High mass is when the congregation's allowed to participate. They're able to sing, you know, and, and, and respond to the worship. Low mass is just when the priest shows up and does stuff, and you just have to watch and then imagine and think. It's, it's, it's weird, but that's, uh, that's the, the low mass. Now, I want to talk a little bit about um, the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist in the Holy Roman Empire. It was only taken by the priests and the bishops. The regular people didn't get to take it. Now, in the early church, everybody got to take it. Very different from the patristic age. By the time you get to the 500s, which is the 6th century, the laity could only receive it in the West. 
three times a year, Christmas, Easter, and Pentecost. But by the 800s, when you get to Charlemagne, it was reduced to just Easter. In the parish churches, the priest would do communion every Sunday, but he would eat the bread and drink the wine all by himself as everybody else is watching. You know, very, very strange. And so I don't know if you can tell in this painting, but here he is lifting it up. And then everybody's just, you, you have the other priests watching, but then behind this veil, you have these lady peeking their heads over. Oh, I want to see, you know, it's ridiculous. This was the Lord's Supper given to, to all believers, but nope, <laughs> congregation just had to, to watch. But I will say this, in the city of Rome, and only in the city of Rome, everybody was able to partake. But then in all the Catholic churches throughout the West, they weren't. So it was weird. Now in the East, everybody was still allowed to partake. So this was just a, a Western Europe type of thing. And so the question is why? And the fast answer is actually the Germans' fault. You know, the, it was the Germanic West that moved in this direction. Many of the laity did not want to take the Lord's Supper because of the warning. Don't take this in an unworthy manner. And, um, and at, by this point, they started believing that it did turn into the body and blood of Jesus and that it was a re-sacrifice. Um, there was debate at this. Some theologians said that's exactly what happens. Others said, no, it is just a symbol. And there was no official position. Regular people were believing that it's the actual body and blood of Jesus. And so they're more afraid. Right. And then the clergy would say, look, we want you to partake, but you have to be serious about your Christianity. You can't have like a, a, a worldly life. And most of the German converts only converted because their kings did. They didn't really care too much about it. They're like, so we don't want to eat and drink judgment upon themselves. So because of that, it was kind of their own cultural choice. And then it eventually just became something that the leadership assumed was right. And so... The average person only took the Lord's Supper once per year. Now, I want to finish by talking about the, the decline of the Holy Roman Empire. Um, and yeah, there's, and then I wanted to talk about feudalism. I'll try to talk really fast um, on this. So the, the decline of the Holy Roman Empire, it wasn't going to last. Charlemagne dies, as everybody does. Um, and then his son tried to rule according to his ideas, but his son wasn't as talented. So there starts to be, uh, I guess you could say, cracks in the shield at this point. And at the end of his reign, he decides to divide his empire up between his three sons. They were not as effective as, as him. And when his sons die, these three territories divide up into much smaller kingdoms. And so now you don't have a united empire anymore. You have a bunch of little, small really independent states, which will one day become all the little countries of Europe. Um, and so when they died, their territories are divided. A, a lot of dukes and nobles take over whole areas. Um, if you got a big enough area, you'd be a king, I guess with the lowercase k. Um, but the title of emperor did pass to one group of German kings. And again, that's where the word Kaiser comes from. And you will still have the Holy Roman Empire exist in name um, until... Roughly, um, it'll exist in name until Napoleon. Napoleon's the one who officially ends it. Um, so, yeah. Now, the, the, the papacy is going to take advantage of this disintegration. They're like, well, now we don't have somebody like Charlemagne saying he's greater than us. But at the same time, they don't have somebody like Charlemagne that could protect them. So even though they don't have this mighty king that is trying to control them, in Italy, a lot of popes are going to be controlled by the Roman nobility, and eventually they'll just become their puppets. So this wasn't necessarily a good thing um, for the popes. Now, once 
the Holy Roman Empire starts to break apart, a couple things happen that contribute to the chaos. And it's real simple. You've probably heard of this. You've probably seen it on TV. There's a show called Vikings, right? The Vikings invaded from the north. And there was no mighty Charlemagne empire to stop them. And the Vikings were fierce warriors. The Europeans never faced anything like this. They worshipped the same gods that the Germans did, you know, uh, previously. So Odin, Thor, and all that kind of stuff. And even though the Germans converted, it's going to take a while for the Vikings to convert. They're going to just come and pillage and, and all that kind of stuff. And at the same time, the Viking invasions are happening from the north. The, the Magyar invasions, which was an Asian people, was invading from the east. And they took over Hungary. There was nothing that, uh, that could stop them. And then the Muslims in the south started pushing up. They took part of Sicily, part of southern Italy. They pushed up further into Spain. So they were getting hit on all sides. It was a bad 100 years, the 900s. And for that reason, a lot of people thought the world was going to end in the year 1000. You know, a lot of, there's a lot of generations that think they're the last one. That one for sure thought they were the last one. Um, but they weren't because here we are... Um, 1,023 years after that. Uh, and even within the church, these years were dramatic, especially 896 to 904. There were 10 popes in eight years, each one assassinated by the one who replaced him. Popes killing each other. And by the time you get to the Renaissance, this kind of stuff happens all the time. Um, if you want to read about a crazy evil man, look up the name Caesar Borgia. Um, he was probably the most corrupt pope ever. And uh, he was smack in the middle of the, of the Renaissance. Uh, in fact, if you've ever heard of Machiavelli writing the, the book The Prince, it was based off of how cutthroat Borgia was as a pope and a ruler and said, all right, I'm going to write a book about like shrewd politics. It's this guy. He had like illegitimate kids with concubines. It was just, it was just nuts. Absolutely nuts. And so uh, you have the murder, the immorality, you have treachery that's among the popes. Um, some people called this period the, the rule of the harlots because a lot of the popes were ruled by wicked women they were sleeping with. They're, not, they're supposed to be celibate, right? Um, and so mistresses and, and mothers trying to wield power from behind. But you want to know what's interesting about this? The papacy survived. And that tells you something. That tells you something. In fact, I have it right here. Because they have set land, because they have recognized authority, because you have standardized practices in the church that Charlemagne set up, and you have the popes with political alliances with all those in power, it doesn't matter who the pope is or how wicked the pope is, the office is going to remain. And it is still there to this day. And, and, and that's why. So the institution was now indispensable to Europe. Um, this chaos that happens in the 900s with the Vikings, corrupt popes, the Magyars, and the Muslims is going to give way to a new social order called feudalism. And this is the last thing I have to talk about, and then we'll be done. Feudalism, you, you've seen it in movies, right? It's a socioeconomic system based on land ownership. Um, so once Charlemagne's empire falls, to fill the gap, to fill the void, local regions develop their own form of government. Here's the way it works. You have a chunk of land that's ruled by a noble. Okay, and that noble answers to a king, but only to an extent. The nobles could actually resist the king. That noble has a vassal run his land. In his land, there will be a castle, and then there will be a little town near the castle, and there will be a market near, um, near that town. And pretty much you have four kinds of people. you got the king or royalty at the top of society. You have the nobles right under 
the king. You have the knights who are the warriors and the protectors. And so nobles are called lords. Knights are called sirs. So in America, we call everybody sir. Not in Europe. In England, you have to be knighted to be called sir. If you just go around calling people sir there, um, they're going to be like, what are you doing? You know, I haven't been knighted by the king or the queen. Um, So only the knights were sirs, and then everybody else were commoners. And in the commoners, you could be a peasant, you could be a merchant. um, And, you know, peasants tended to work the land. Uh, This is where a lot of our last names come from. Bakers, guess what they were? Warriors. No, just kidding. They baked bread. Uh, Smiths, what, what, what did they do? They made tools. They were blacksmiths. My last name, uh, Feinstein, is, it's Jewish-German, and it means delicate stone. My ancestors were merchants, and that's where we got our name. We sold jewelry. Don't know who we stole it from, but we sold uh, jewelry. You know? And, and, and so, so the thing is, that's where a lot of the names come from. And if you were born a peasant, you died a peasant. There was no moving up. Um, you know? and, and so that's kind of the way it worked. And, and, and the way that the nobles kept powers, the knights worked. They were the army for the nobles. The king doesn't have his own army. So pretty much the king asks the nobles to let him borrow his knights if he needs to go to war with another country. And the noble will say, yes, you can have my knights. But in return, I want you to cut my taxes. I want you to give me a little more land. And if, if a king said no, then all the nobles could say, hey, don't give them your knights. And then the king's like, dang it. All right, fine. I beg you. you know? So this was the world of Europe back then. And this was the world that existed in Europe in part until World War I. In the United States, we are the first country that came out of a European background to not have this system where everybody's a sir, everybody's a lord or lady. You know, it was what we did really was revolutionary. It was. I know for there's a lot of, you know, trash people, you know, will will talk about our country. And, And there is some legitimate trash talking that needs to be said. Our country has a lot of evils to it as well. But we're the first ones to break the the feudal system. Now, for the time, feudalism made a lot of sense. It provided order because if you don't have order, you have anarchy. Anarchy would be a lot worse than this. Everybody knew their place in society. There was law and order. There were knights who were the police and the soldiers. So you had uh, vassals who would be the judges. Um, You had in every village, you also had the church. And you had the bishop, so church and state all together, you were able to, uh, you know, go get your religious needs met by the priests or the bishops. Um, You had your safety provided by the knights. You had your living through work in the land or whatever it might be, being a baker. Um, Yeah, you weren't going to be rich. You lived in a grassy hut with a thatched roof, um, whereas the, the Lord lived in the castle. And of course, if some Vikings decide to invade, yeah, your hut is going to get burned and you're going to get killed or raped or whatever. Unfortunately, that's what they did. But those who are locked up in the castle are probably going to be fine. You know, and so that's how the the nobles and and all those would would survive all this. Um, Now, the one thing about the church, though, is even though you had this social order of these four classes, the church was separated from that order and the classes because whether you're the king or whether you're the peasant, you need the church. Because by this time, they, they believed you need the sacraments to be in good standing with God. And who gives the sacraments? The church. And so again, the, all four classes needed the church. And if you were uh, from a lower class or higher class, you could become a monk. And that's one way you could kind of move up in prestige since bishops were respected um, in, in this society. Um, so, yeah. Um, and the lower classes would commit themselves to the church because 
even though this life sucks, hey, we got the next life. Uh, the upper classes would commit themselves to the bishops and the church because we need the sacraments. Um, and again, the church was not under political authority. Um, it wasn't under the Lord of the manor couldn't tell the church what to do. Only the Pope could tell the church what to do. And so even though feudalism, is, it's going to last a long time, um, about a thousand years. It's going to provide order for Europe, but the Catholic Church is going to outlive feudalism, you know, because it was able to maintain that separation. Now, at this point, there were no nation states yet. There were no great kings or emperors who could control entire states. So no central person was able to lead it all. But as far as the church goes, there was one person who led it all religiously. And again, the Bishop of Rome. And so that adds to his prestige um, because he had an authority in religion that nobody had in terms of politics. Um, and then I just put a little bullet here. Some priests became so wealthy that they would cross over and become lords as well, um, which it's not how it was supposed to work, but some did that. So again, that was the one way um, to advance socially. Um, yep. Yeah, and so... People will say back then you had, even though there's four classes, they would say you could break it down to three. You had upper, lower, and priestly. And in the French Revolution, that's the three classes of France. And because of that, that's what actually leads to the French Revolution. I don't know how much of that you remember from high school, but, um, and I don't know if you had a good teacher on it. If I was your teacher, you would have you known all about it. But anyhow, so let me conclude. The Middle Ages led to an increase of, uh, of prestige and power of the papacy. You end up with the papal states. So the pope has his own territory and is a ruler. Uh, he crowns emperors. I put crowing, but I meant crowning. Um, at the same time, uh, you also have a revived Roman Empire called the Holy Roman Empire. It's a, it has a Catholic Frankish character rather than a real Roman one. Um, you had doctrinal controversy. You have the widening rift between the East and Western churches. But you also have the building of medieval European culture, which is called Christendom. If you ever wondered what that's called, that's just the Christian society of Europe in the Middle Ages. It developed during this time. Also, church practice that still happens in Roman Catholic churches today with regard to worship developed during this time. And then, of course, the decline of the Holy Roman Empire ushered in a long period of chaos and violence. And that void was filled with feudalism 